creativity is such an incredibly wasteful process and actually Christians want to de-risk everything and and yet some of the greatest comedians and the greatest writers they eventually get their show on we watch the pilot and oh wow this stinks how could nobody see ahead of time that this wasn't going to work and they didn't it's a very very risky process and so Christians more than anyone should be prepared to take those risks failure is certain success is the outlier are listening to the Act One podcast. I'm your host, James Duke. Thank you for tuning in to our little podcast that can, all three of you. If you enjoy what you hear, you can support us by subscribing to our podcast. You can review our podcast. You could even share our podcast with a fourth person. My guest for this episode is British screenwriter James Carey. James is the co-creator and co-writer of the BBC comedy Bluestone 42. His other TV credits include Miranda, My Hero, and My Family, as well as co-writing several series with comedian Milton Jones. James has also script-edited and written for a number of other British comedy series, including Concrete Cow, Recorded for Training Purposes, Bridget and Iman, and Citizen Khan. James is also a podcaster and the author of several books, including The Sacred Art of Joking and The Gospel According to a Sitcom Writer. James is a very funny, very thoughtful man, and we discuss a wide-ranging assortment of topics on today's show, so I do hope you enjoy. James Carey, welcome to the Act One Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's an honor to be to be part of such august company of previous guests. I've been listening to the podcast, and I've really enjoyed it, so I feel I'm kind of out of my league here, but thanks for having me anyway. Well, it's you are not out of your league, I assure you, and it is a it's it's a real treat to be able to talk to you. I I um I discovered you uh on YouTube. So I guess some good things come out of YouTube. But um <laughs> the algorithm works or or doesn't work. Who knows? Work, I guess yeah. the audience can be the judge. Yeah. I think I was looking for Rick and Morty clips and I came up with you. No. Um, uh, yes, that's uh, I'd be very disappointing <laughs> on that school. <laughs> no, uh, but you uh I found you um just making some really fascinating, interesting um, commentaries on uh, being a um, a Christian who, who is a screenwriter and, and writing comedy. Um, and I was like, man, I really would like to uh, connect with this guy. And so I reached out to, um, uh, I think it was Steve Turner, actually. And I said, do you do you know this guy? And he was like, no, but I, I, I might know someone who does. And so that, <laughs> that's actually how I got your comedy. Here we are. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Now, you are you are on the other side of the pond. Uh it's uh late there. No, no, no. You're you're on the other side of the pond. Sorry. <laughs> I can't keep up. I don't know which uh, that's too hostile. Sorry. That's just not <laughs> I should have put an American flag up just just yeah. uh, behind me, just so you know where I stand. No, okay. Um uh so yeah, you're over there. And and one of the things I wanted to just kind of talk with you about is some of the differences that maybe people aren't aware of um, writing for television um, in uh, the the English system versus yeah. uh, writing over here in the American Hollywood system. So I wonder if we could just kind of start there. If you could kind of just give us a little bit of a, a glimpse into uh, your career as a screenwriter for our audience, just to familiarize uh, them. Uh, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll always do your I'll give links where they can find your shows and your books and all that kind of stuff. But I was wondering if you could just kind of tell our audience just a little bit about <clears throat> how you got started 
uh, as a screenwriter and uh, maybe some of the things that uh, you've been able to do over the years. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I loved it when you said, you know, what's the system over here in the UK? Uh, yeah, we don't really have a system over here. Uh, it's it's an absolute shambles. And I often say to new writers when they say, you know, what's what do you do? How do you get in? How do I how do I phrase this pitching document? What's the format? I, I always say it's like no one's ever made a TV show before, uh, let alone a comedy show before. And I think it's because a lot of UK comedy comes from the stage uh, the, the tradition of the old sitcoms come from like theatre, but also loads of the early comedians after World War II, loads of them were kind of from uh, from uh, troupe entertainment, uh, stuff like that. And so and they kind of transferred to radio. So over here in the UK, radio comedy is still a thing. And that's where I got started. Really? Uh, so, yeah, sure. So uh, so radio commission like regular sitcoms, uh, Radio 4, the BBC Radio 4 does does that. And I got into that because I was writing uh, comedy at university. I was studying theology um, and up in at the University of Durham. I wanted to go to Cambridge where loads of the great comedians went and uh, they rejected me twice. So that's kind of a callback, isn't it? You know, I, I went the next year to get it, to get in. And they said, no, no, we're not having you this time. Ah. Uh, so maybe I should apply a third time uh, for a PhD or something. And they can reject me again. And the, and the comedy trio will be complete. <laughs> the rule of three. Yeah, the rule of three. There we go. Just for, just for completeness. But yeah, so um, I went to the University of Durham, did loads of comedy there alongside my degree and writing sketches and, uh, and directing and that kind of stuff. And then went to the Edinburgh Festival with, with, my, with my group. And we did okay. And then radio kind of offer ways in for people with no track records, write sketches uh, for this sort of topical radio show. So a very, very low uh, uh, kind of, uh, it's not that clever. It's like a Saturday Night Live, but on radio. So it's kind of a bit slower. It's not as funny. It's not as outlandish, but it, you know, so this was 20 years ago. Uh, that was a show called Weekending and loads of other British comedy writers got their start writing for that show. And then I, I wrote a sitcom for the radio called Think the Unthinkable. Uh, I came up with an idea that kind of favoured a young... So one of my bits of advice to, to writers when I give them... Uh, writers in their 20s, they say they want to write a sitcom. I say, my advice, be older. Uh, which is terrible advice, obviously. Uh, but, but when you're young, you kind of... You want to write sketches. You've got loads of ideas. You don't have as much life experience. And so that's why, you know, improv is a huge tradition where, where you are. Uh, over here, kind of, you know, there's there's other kind of stage sketch comedy kind of stuff, and improv is is becoming a much bigger thing. Uh, but in those days, you kind of you 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 have lots of ideas. Um, so I, I wrote a lot of sketches too, and then I had this idea for a sitcom for the radio, and then from that radio sitcom, I did a, a few episodes of a TV show. So I I worked on someone else's TV show, and in itself, that is unusual to some extent because. Over here, they tend to make six or eight episodes in a run rather than 22. Mm -hmm. But the one writer or the, 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 the two people who write it, they tend to write all six of them. They just do all of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I did, a I ended up doing a show called Bluestone 4-2, which is essentially uh, MASH in Afghanistan, but with British bomb disposal guys. Um, me and my writing partner did a series of eight and then a series of seven and a series of six. And we wrote, we wrote all of them. Uh, we had one other guy come in to help in series three. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so, so, but I've managed to get a bit of experience on another show called my family, uh, which is like a domestic kind of sitcom, you know, with a big sofa and set in a house with a family. 
And then I did an, I also did another show uh, called My Hero. Uh, I did six episodes of that. It's a studio sitcom. It's kind of like Mork and Mindy. I mean, the, the show creator won't thank me for saying that, but that's kind of what it was. It was like, <laughs> hey, hey, my boyfriend's a superhero from another planet, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so Superman, the sitcom. Uh, so, so I got loads of experience through doing that kind of thing as well. So I've, I've had a bit of an unusually mixed experience of doing radio comedy, sketches, sitcom, TV, sitcom, writing on someone else's show, developing my own show. Uh, the best known thing I've done here in the UK is that there was a show called Miranda, uh, which I think was going to be developed for the U S at one point, although I don't think I was going to receive any, any residual <laughs> for royalties for that. But, um, but yeah, so, uh, we, uh, we, I did a sitcom for. Uh, from with Miranda Hart and I wrote the first couple of series with her and and this other guy I did Bluestone 4-2 with uh, so yeah so that's kind of and I've done some kids stuff as well for for children's BBC and uh, and written a couple of books too so it's been a bit of a bit of a messy uh, messy CV but I feel like I'm you know I, I've survived I've made a living and right now making a living feels like you're winning yeah that's right no I think it always does that's right and uh when you talk about <clears throat> uh, writing the writing, you know, sketch comedy uh, versus the sitcoms, can you just describe to us a little bit maybe the differences uh, between the sketch comedy writing versus the? I'm, I'm assuming are they is it half hour? We would call it half hour over here. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So at the BBC half hour because it's not a commercial station. It actually is a half hour. It's twenty eight and a half minutes, yeah. and your half hour is about. Mm, 21 22 uh so um but yeah loads of those shows are played over here like you know friends and fraser and mash and cheers and you know we got so we guys think we think you guys are amazing at sitcom because we only get the absolute cream of the crop Um, (laughs) and you guys think you know you only get our good stuff too so you think that we're amazing too so there's a lot of mutual admiration going on until you actually dig a little deeper but (laughs) with sketches um you know, so sketches are, you know, they tend to be two, three minutes long. Uh, and I guess your, you know, Saturday Night Live has sketches in it. And uh, there was another show called uh, Mr. Show, I think. Yeah, Mr. Show, but yeah. You guys that have, t- typically don't, haven't done sketch shows. Like over here in the UK, there were lots and lots of sketch shows. Hardly any at the moment. I think it's because an expen- it's an expensive form of TV because you've got so many setups and so many sp- mm-hmm. You know, it's it's but actually that's where you get lots of new writing voices and you you get to they get to try themselves out in that environment um and and a sketch is basically an idea isn't it it's like somebody having an idea and it's like here's a regular situation here's a complication here are some jokes on that theme and then here's a little twist and, and you're done uh so my 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 sitcom geeks co-host uh dave cohen he goes back to our this is all in aristotle uh this is uh in his poetics it's like it's a situation then there's a twist and then there's um uh and then there's a little uh thing at the end uh, although i think aristotle says it better than that uh, I think. <laughs> my uh, my classical greek's not much good my new testament greek is getting better i'm, I'm trying to learn every day new testament greek yeah, I think uh, i think uh aristotle is very famous for that quote and that little and, and a little thing at the end that little thing at the end. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. So get that on a T-shirt. Uh, that's what he meant, anyway. I don't know. Is, is with the, with okay. So with uh, the sketch writing, is it? Uh, I'm just just curious in terms of culturally over there, and even in the business, uh, it's like Monty Python's Flying Circus. Is that kind of the? 
is that kind of the standard bear? Like to this day, do, do people look back on it? You know, kind of, for instance, like here, the quintessential, uh, if people want to, if people want to have a long view of sitcoms here, the quintessential sitcom here is I Love Lucy, right? So like they, it, cause it, it established the three camera, the, what we call the multi-camera format, right? And so, and uh, so it, it kind of is the 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 one that many people point back to here. Is there is there a particular show that uh, that you would say uh, you guys look back to as kind of like the standard bearer for the sitcom? For the sitcom, yeah. Uh, yeah, I get maybe there are a few actually. I mean, there's there's one which ran which is still relatively recent called Only Fools and Horses, although it's thirty years ago now. So that's about a working class guy kind of pulling himself up. Uh, by his bootstraps there there was a really a uh, big show called uh, Hancock uh, so Tony Hancock was a very famous comedian and uh that was a re- that was a rev- that was a very big show on the radio it transferred to TV uh, so he was this kind of pretty pompous uh guy uh who was often in different situations and it was quite a mixed they quite just they often just changed the situation completely and it didn't seem to matter and it's a bit looser and then those guys, the guys who wrote that, then did a show called Steptoe and Son, which was a big show over here, but became Sanford and Son uh, over. Oh, away. yeah, that's right. I remember hearing about that. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then you know there are other shows like uh, it was called uh, either Till Death Us Do Part or In Sickness and in Health, which um, became All in the Family, I think, over over with you with Archie Bunker. Yeah, Archie Bunker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, the uh, the British Archie Bunker is called Alf Garnet, and uh, he lives in the East End of London. And uh, he rants and raves about about everything. Uh, so so yeah, there there are there are quite a few um, there are quite a few going back, and it's it's the ones you remember when you grow you, when you're growing up. You remember the ones, and those are the ones that you just think, well, that is a sitcom. That is it, and, and you spend a lot of your life trying to write that show. You know, you're trying yeah. to recapture that feeling. I think there's a lot about sitcom where you are when you first watch them, and that feeling of security uh, or or excitement. If you're a recent graduate, you've just left home and you're watching Friends and you're living in a big city, suddenly you feel like you could be friends with Ross and Rachel and, and Joey. Um, it's So there, there are so many things going on with a sitcom. They're, they're just a fascinating genre. I, I, I watched way too much television when I was a kid. It's it's clearly established in my family that I watched way, way too much. I they My, my siblings, I, I was young, I'm the youngest of four. Me too. Okay, excellent. And, and my parents had given up trying to regulate how much TV I watched as well. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. The parents were like, okay, whatever. And, yeah. and we got to watch stuff we probably shouldn't have because our older siblings watched it. And I, my, 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 uh, my siblings called me the walking TV guide because I knew when everything came on, because this was back when there was only like four or five channels. And I knew when everything came on at what time, on what station, that whole thing. And I grew up watching, I mean, it was, there were so, back 80s, 80s television was just packed solid with sitcoms. I mean, that was just, because I was not only watching what was currently on, but all the ones from the 70s and 60s were on repeats here. And so I was devouring all of those as well. And I'm just curious for you growing up, you mentioned you're the youngest of four. Did you grow up? uh, a, a TV kid? Did you, were you obs- yeah. and 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 as such, did you did that kind of inspire your um, your interest in in screenwriting? 
Yeah, it definitely did. I mean, I was only interested in two things really growing up, especially as TV was concerned, was cricket, which I guess doesn't travel particularly well. Um, and uh, I mean, we, a, I mean, we have crickets. Is that what you're talking about? We no, have- no, I'm talking about the game that can last five days and still be declared a draw. Um, and uh, then there's a, yeah, so I watch cricket and I watch comedy. And I kind of didn't really have any use for anything else. I just kind of didn't really see the point of it. Maybe documentaries was fine, but just dramas with no jokes. It's like, where are the jokes? What's the what's the point of this? And the more interested I became in in comedy as I as I went to university, particularly actually even in, in my when I was like 13, 14, 15, I started writing sketches because I, n- I now look back and see I wanted to understand how comedy worked. I wanted to understand why people laughed. I wasn't actually oddly that interested in making people laugh as in I could do it and I did do it, but I, I, you know, some comedians will tell you that when they're on stage and they get, and they get a laugh, they just get this amazing rush and it's addictive. Like I can see that. I kind of don't get that. And I I do perform now a little bit, uh, especially in in church contexts. And, and I do get a big laugh uh, on this and that, but I, I don't, I don't need that. (laughs) He says in denial, I don't need that. In the way that I do know that some comedians do, they really do live for that. Whereas I get immense satisfaction sitting in an audience. So I write a show with a guy called Milton Jones, who's a stand-up comedian. And it's kind of like a, it's kind of almost like a goon show, silly kind of big story. Uh, I love being in the audience as it's recorded. They don't know that I'm one of the writers. And when I hear them laugh, I just think, huh, we, we, we won. We got that one. And then I hear them laugh at the next one. That feels good. And then at the end, when they give when they give a round of applause for the writers who are named, I just sit there looking around, going, "Oh, I wonder who this James Carey guy is." I'm not going to tell anybody. So, but there's that. It's almost like it's almost like an intellectual exercise for you. Yeah, in a way, jokes are a bit like crossword puzzles, and if you get the audience laugh, you you think you can take that one. You 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 did it. What's the next one? That's fascinating. Where do you think that (laughs) deranged? (laughs) It's like (laughs) then help. This isn't good, is it? <laughs> I mean, it did it, but like, is it one of those things where you, uh, growing up, you were obsessed with trying to figure out, wait, why is this thing funny? So you constantly, you know, like the way my son likes to tinker with why things work, right? They try to take, yeah. take them apart. Is that your, you literally spent a lot of your early childhood trying to take apart jokes? Yeah, I did. And I memorized stuff and I, I would memorize stuff and not even know why it was funny. And then when I said it, it would be funny. So, you know, my parents or their friends might laugh. And sometimes they were laughing at the fact that I was saying something that I clearly didn't understand. Um, but it was just, again, it kind of all went in and it all made me think, hmm, okay. Uh, so that that kind of thing works. And that rhythm kind of works. And and actually, uh, funny enough, be, being a Christian and going to a, a Christian school was a huge blessing uh, to me because we had we had to do s- sketches in our school assembly in our chapels and I would sometimes uh, write those or be involved with those in our Christian union meeting and there was a voluntary Christian meeting but it was a, because it was a really positive Christian school the Christian meeting was really big and so you got to do sketches in front of 100 people and you, you kind of almost got a genuine audience um, and then when I went to university I, I I already had a bit of a head start on a load of other people who who had ideas of doing what I was doing. So then you were, you know, practicing on non-Christians who who aren't quite so kind, although having said that, maybe we'll come on to this. Christians in the UK at least aren't great laughers. Uh so they're kind of they're kind of a bit worried uh about laughing. Uh 
So there's a bit of a there's a bit of a gap when they just think, is this one okay? Okay, we can laugh at this one. Um, so yeah, so I've there's always been that constant experimentation. And I guess I never thought it would become a career until partly I, I failed to get other jobs, uh, which guaranteed me a regular income. And when I applied for those jobs, they could tell I didn't want to do them. Uh, they could tell that my that my passions were elsewhere. Wow. Um, I applied for a job in advertising and they said, where do you see yourself in five years time? And I, I now know the answer isn't writing a sitcom for the television yeah. because that's what I said. Yeah. And so saying to them in five years time, I don't want to be working for you. That's not smart, is it? <laughs> and it's in the interview. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, and I'm glad I said it unwittingly, you know, I, I spoke truer than I knew. And, and I, I guess within five years, I kind of was writing sitcoms. Wow. So there we go. Is it, it, do you feel a, and we'll, we'll, we'll obviously unpack a lot of the spiritual components because you, you have written extensively and you talk extensively about um, uh, how your faith is, is, uh, is so much a part of what you do and, and informs who you are as a, not only as a person, but as an artist and a writer. But uh, I'm just curious, like, was there a, uh, there are some people, not, not a lot of people, but there are some people that consider themselves called. Um, they feel like God has called them to to do these kind of things. Um, did you ever get anything like feel like you did that, or was it just literally like I'm just going to keep walking through these doors? Yeah, I felt like I, I've had numerous, numerous two or three times, and I thought, Am I doing the right thing? Should I be going for ministry? Should I be? Should I become a pastor? Should I? Because in a way, that's what all my friends were doing, and all my, um, you know, I knew, knew knew lots of people who were doing that, and just thinking. I'm the kind of person who does that. Am I doing that? And I just never quite had the passion to do it. I mean, I didn't have an angelic uh, visitation telling me to stay comedy writing or to to work for the BBC or anything like that. So I, I never felt uh, really super called, no audible voices, uh, no burning bits of scripture saying you will go and do this or that. But it just felt like that my sense of humor, comedy, my writing abilities was something I wanted to develop. And actually, uh, leaving university and, and moving to London and developing them, it's something I did completely separate from the church in the sense of I wasn't seeking Christian uh, support. I wasn't seeking church gigs. I was just getting out there writing secular uh, comedy for the for, for BBC radio and then television. Um, it's only more recently that I've kind of fused the two together because I'm I'm interested to do that. But uh, but yeah, so, and I think it's one of the points I make in, in other areas where I think we've got a bit of a problem with our, uh, with our sense of humor as a church and also with our culture. And if we believe that politics is downstream from culture, the politicians are more terrified than anybody else. And they're only doing what, what the cultural elites are telling them to do. That's where they're getting their cues from. So the, the real people are the cultural elites uh, and the artists so if we want to be uh, a church that's going to, you know, depends on how your theology of the end times is. But if you think we've got decades or hundreds of years rather than, than minutes before Christ returns, then we're going to want to get upstream and, and, uh, and, infect, and infect the culture and affect the culture. So the church should be probably a bit more strategic about taking a few of the talented, uh, articulate uh, young men and women and saying, I know you're thinking about ministry, but have you thought about writing a sitcom? Which sounds crazy, but I guess Will and Grace had a pretty bit of big effect, didn't it? 
Um, and you know, on that one issue, there are loads of other issues. And I just picked that one because it's, it's the most obvious example of a sitcom changing people's mind. I think going back in history, we didn't get it over here, but Murphy Brown, I believe changed the view of divorce. Um, and these single, things single single parenting change the change the view of on single parenting. okay single parenting okay yeah so we ne- we never got it over here but I, I i sense that was a culturally extremely significant show so so if we want to affect the culture then then sitcoms is as good a place to do it as any it's partly reflecting and it's partly changing yeah. uh the culture uh but we're not great at sending people into that so any pastors listening may want to think about that advice they keep giving to young people to go into the church well most of them, maybe that's fine, but are there one or two who you could kind of push towards towards Hollywood? Yeah. Uh, I think I think they may be more, it, they may have more impact there than we might than we might know or realize. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. That, that's one of the things we talk about at Act One, is maybe in lieu of seminary, or maybe yeah. in addition to seminary, um, go to film school, and um, the because uh, you know one of the things we talk about Act One is. Artists tend to be the tip of the spear and screenwriters and filmmakers. We tend to be the tip of the spear. We tend to be the one that is in there first. And, and like you said, uh, you know, you, you can sit, we can sit around and argue whether or not the cultural, cultural elites um, should have the influence that they have, mm. or you should just accept that they had that influence and want to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and I guess it's both. And we want to send we want to send some people into politics too, um, and we want to send some into the in, into the church. It's so it's 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 a team game. You know, we 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 fight this war together. Yeah. Um, you know, we are happy a happy band of warriors together. Victory is certain. It's going to take a while, and we're going to get pounded in the meantime. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but the, but the flip side is, as I often say to to writers, is failure is certain. You know, success is the outlier. Um, and what, what I love about what you guys do in America is if you get a successful show, you run it and 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 run it. Not least because, you know, make, make hay while the sun shines. I mean, that's a, I don't know if that's, that's an expression for you, but so all of those, all of the money that's generated through that hit, you know, partly goes into the pockets of people, but it's partly then invested in all the, in all of the failures that are required to find that next gem. That's right. Uh, so it's an, and I think that's one thing that Christians ironically find hard is it's creativity is such an incredibly wasteful process. Um, and, and actually Christians want to de-risk everything. Yep. And, and, and yet some of the greatest comedians and the greatest writers, they eventually get their show on. We watch the pilot and, Oh wow, this stinks. Ouch, this is terrible. How could nobody see ahead of time that this wasn't going to work? And they didn't. Uh, it's a very, very risky process. And so Christians, more than anyone, should be prepared to take those risks um, uh, and encounter the failures. Uh, you know, For you, James, have you ever had any issues with navigating uh, your professional career as a person of faith? Has there been times when um, it has... Um, been either a, a net plus, a net plus, or a net minus for you. I mean, I've always been fairly open about my faith, just because people know, and I, I kind of don't care. Um, and I guess there are maybe one or two gigs I've never got, I've never even heard about, because people might think uh, that I, I'm probably not someone that they want to work with. And I understand that. I guess there are other people on the flip side who I don't want to work with. Um, so that that's up to them. 
uh, I tend to find that when you're in the room with someone and you actually just talk about stuff, uh, people are, you know, uh, much friendlier and, and less worried. Uh, because ultimately, especially within comedy, it's kind of funniest wins, really. It's like, what's the best joke? What's what's the most? Tr and the best joke is probably the most truthful joke that's truthful to the character in the situation. And so I think there's always that thing that it's it's kind of going to win in the end. I guess if I worked in a different kind of comedy where I was, if I was involved in a show that was satirizing everything for, for any reason, uh, that that might become a bit more problematic. But that's kind of not not really where I feel I've been called. I think there's a Christian way of doing that. And I think, you know, those guys at the Babylon Bee are doing a pretty good job of, of treading those waters and, and, and offending everyone uh, occasionally. You know, I love, I love the, 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 the second funniest things in the Babylon Bee after the headlines are the comments, especially yeah. the comments that are essentially, I normally find the Babylon Bee really funny, but I, I just don't think that <laughs> this joke in brackets about Presbyterians is fit for comedy. It's like, okay. Oh, they picked on the thing that you like. Okay, great. I'm pleased to see that. And the fact that you don't see that makes it even funnier. Um, so true. But, uh, so but true. yeah, I think in a way I, I, so I don't really feel that there's stuff that's necessarily even off limits as a, as a comedy writer. I think everything that there is a way of dealing with most things. It's just, it's the, it's the job of the artist to find what they are. And there have been times when I've been involved with shows which have bits or scenes in them. I just think, no, nah, I don't, I don't like the tone of that, but I don't. And sometimes I manage to save my piece and sometimes I don't. Uh, TV is a team game. You know, um, each episode involves 150 people. And if you don't want to play by, if you don't want to play it as a team, then raise your own money uh, and and make it exactly as you want it. Um, so if, if you've got two million quid to make your sitcom, then great, make a sitcom in, in your own image. Um, and it'll probably not be as good as if it has other voices and people get kind of getting in the way and annoying you, pointing out stuff that you don't want to see. So I, I see the collaborative aspect as both frustrating and improving. But uh, most of these things are, you know, are, are, are hard won and, and, and the better for it. And when I write with my writing partner, Richard, um, who is not a believer, not a Christian believer, um, we tend to find that if a joke makes both of us laugh, then we're on to something. And if one of us doesn't really like it, uh, then we tend to to bin it. Um, he occasionally fights his corner harder than me, and I give way. Uh, but I, you know, but I I do dig in on on one or two things. On one show we did the the one set in the army in Afghanistan. Um, I just can't stand the sound of blasphemy, even though it's truthful that characters blaspheme. Um, I don't like to hear it, so occasionally I would change uh, blasphemies to swear words. <laughs> I, I mean, that kind of made it better. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I, I kind of would, and he would occasionally change them back again. I would say, oh, okay, you found the one I changed. I changed it back. Okay, you can have that one. Um, <laughs> but in a way, it's like it's it's just a question of being understanding that people in sitcoms do and say things that I don't agree with and that I wouldn't do or say. Um, just as Jesus tells parables about people who do unwise things, um, and uh, and so you know we have to be. We have to be biblical in the way we approach uh, how texts work and how characters work within stories and how they are presented. So, so I, I feel fine on that, but occasionally you get that twinge. But in terms of the upside, though, I feel I do feel liberated as a Christian because I was saying earlier, because failure is so common mm. and you have to put your absolute heart and soul in it to be even within a chance of success. Um, you have to really 
really believe in a show because if they get a whiff of the fact that you don't believe in it it's going to feel inauthentic it's going to feel fake so you you really do have to wear your heart on your sleeve and open yourself up and just put it all in and you know and knowing that they're probably going to say no is just so hard if i were not a christian i think i would find it unbearable and i and i'm amazed at the level of of you know of pushback that that is normal in the industry that people without a faith can withstand i think i think they're heroic to be as stoical as they are to to cope with that level of failure i i've got god's providence to fall back on i remember when i was in was came close to getting a tv series on that i that had been a successful radio series and it was pitched to the bbc and i did pray before we did the read through in front of the the executives i prayed to myself lord if this is going to make me a better christian and if this is going to be a blessing to your kingdom I pray it's commissioned. And if it is not going to be those things, I pray that it isn't. And I've just given it over to God. I think this is a funny show. I would like BBC One to do it. Did they do it? No. But I'd prayed the prayer beforehand and just said, not my will, but yours. You know, I know those words were originally used in a different context, so I don't want to sound too sanctimonious. <laughs> um, but that's kind of what you have to say. And so in a way, I found that um, I've, I found being a Christian actually uh a huge relief in an industry that is full of uncertainty, failure, um, criticism. You know, I've had pages of, you know, bad reviews as well for stuff I've done. My, my, um, my army, my, my Afghanistan comedy, Bluestone 4-2 had a couple of really, really negative reviews where they, they wanted it to be an anti-war sitcom. And we, we weren't trying to do that. We were trying to show why soldiers really enjoy being soldiers. We were trying to show, why they wanted to deploy to a, a dangerous situation. So that, you know, but I, I could take it because my identity is not in my work. My identity is in Christ. And because of that, I can, I can cope with a few slings and arrows, but yeah, you know, some of them hurt after a while and you have to sit on the bench and, uh, and, and that's okay too. And I, I, I had a couple of shows getting knocked back uh, a couple of years ago and I slightly went away to lick my wounds just because it, it really hurt, especially because, there was one show we were pitching and we were doing a read through in front of the channel and they'd already publicly said a few weeks earlier that they had no interest in doing studio sitcoms, uh, especially not family pre-watershed ones. So what we were doing felt like an utter waste of time. And we'd spent, you know, months and months on this pilot script. And so um, I had to kind of go away and, and, you know, recover but that's okay i wrote wrote a couple of books and did some radio and you know did some other bits and pieces and you know and then you you set sail again uh you know you you set out to sea hoping you're not going to get dashed on the rocks again the life of a writer it's uh to to, to borrow a biblical analogy constantly sowing um yeah. occasionally reaping <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely constantly, occasionally reaping. you know i love i love what you're saying james i think there's a lot of really good stuff in what you're saying in a sense this is the this one of the i don't know about for you but one of the saddest things for me is to interact with christians in the business who don't see um their um, their work and, and and their life and their faith in this context, in the sense that um, we don't have to walk around with the same kind of hopelessness um, that someone who is not uh, a, a Christian. We we don't have to walk around with uh, with all that fear. I mean, you know, Hollywood out here is just. I mean, that's the it, it, it's run by fear. Everyone is afraid. 
And every meeting you go into, it's all it's all about, um, you know, is is this going to help my career? Is this going to hurt my career? Am I the one that's going to say yes to the next great show or great film? Am I the one who's going to say uh, no to the next great show? Like, and so there's there's so much fear, and and I one of the saddest things for me is to is to see Christians who um, who get caught up in that same fear. And who walk in that same fear, and who walk in that same sense of hopelessness, um, and and we don't have to because, like you said, we we rely on a different source of strength and our identity, um, at least where 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 it should. And, and so, for you, um, where where do you go to encourage yourself to stay centered uh, in God's presence and in uh, and in your Christian walk? Um, I'm just curious for our audience, like just your own personal discipleship, like for you, how do you stay uh, centered uh, with your faith? Thank you. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's very easy to get caught by the bubble. Um, If you're in show business, you do feel a bit magic and special. And therefore uh, you maybe feel like you don't quite belong in church. Um, But I've always tried to make sure that I go to church with people who actually probably don't really understand what I do because what I do is not really all that special in the grand scheme of things. Some of them are teachers, some of them are nurses. Um, some of them in, in my part of the world, some of them make helicopters. Uh, that's uh, some of them assemble Apache uh, helicopters. Um, and so we, we're all called to do different things. We're all part of the body. So it, it kind of doesn't matter on that level. Uh, so I just think being involved in church fully uh, rather than partially. Um, so, and I, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why I've held back from trying to, uh, to move to where you are. Cause obviously wouldn't I, wouldn't I, wouldn't I love to be writing Brooklyn nine, nine. Yeah. <laughs> I love that show. I absolutely love that show. I, I, I love, you know, I love mainstream comedies with jokes in them. I love Brooklyn nine, nine. I love the Goldbergs, you know, I love modern family, uh, big, big fan of all those shows. And part of me just thinks, Oh, I should have, I, you know, I should have not had kids or I should have had one kid and we should have moved to California and I should have, you know, uh, gone on one of those shows and Hey, I could be a showrunner by now. Um, and in a way you just think, well, that that's great. Would I see my kids? No. Could I take part in a church, uh, fully? No. Uh, do I think the Christians therefore can't be showrunners? No, I don't think that at all. I think some do that brilliantly and it's not for me to say, and, and again, these things are seasons uh, of your life. And uh, that's maybe something I'd be open to right. in the future. But I just know right now, my kids are fairly young. We now home educate. Um, yeah. And there's time and there's eternity. Yeah. Uh, so, it, so in one sense, I try to make some career choices that aren't going to put me in those places where it does feel like you're in the valley of darkness. And then when you just look at scripture, it's pretty hard to avoid the constant uh, command not to worry. I, th- mm-hmm. I think we're told to not worry more than we're told to love each other. I think, I, I think love each other is a nice to have. Um, I think don't worry is pretty basic. And we live in a society now, which, which is, which is saying how much we love each other because we want equality and all that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of hate under the surface and there's a, so much anxiety. We it's worry, 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 worry. And there are plenty of people who love the fact that we're worried because it means they can sell us stuff and yeah. um, make sure we subscribe and click and uh, follow and, you know, talk, talk, talk their opinions. Um, so 
yeah, that injunction to not worry, I, I do take really seriously. And I, and I think I'm aided by being, I think God has blessed me with uh, what P.G. Woodhouse would call a, a sunny disposition, mm -hmm. uh, a sunny disposition. So I'm a bit of an optimist and I, I don't, you know, so I'm aware that it's, it's all right for me. But yeah, there are plenty of times when you think, what am I doing? Um, you know, what? and you, you switch on the TV and you just think, this show doesn't work. Why is this show on TV? This doesn't work. <laughs> Who's watching this? I can tell you that. Okay. You know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I have those moments too. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, obviously I'm talking a good game on a podcast, you know, <laughs> that, that, that's the easy bit. That's the easy bit. Yeah. Especially today. There's so, there's so many shows these days. There's just so much stuff out there. That when someone sends me a thing or mentions, hey, you should check this show out. I'm like, I just don't have time. Like, like I'll do my best to get around to it. But I, I, I have to I have to be so careful with my time these days because I, too, am a, I'm a father and a husband. And um, and you just there's not enough there's not enough time to to watch everything. And, and so when someone tells you that something's good and it's not, you're just like, why Why am I, why do I waste my time watching that? And it's so annoying when there is a show that I want to watch with my kids. My kids are 11 and 13. The one show that I really want to watch with them because I loved it as a, I don't know, as a student, but I, it's a, such a lovely show, was the, was the series Due South? Yeah, Due South. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, man, what a great show. Um, I mean, Benton Fraser, the Mountie, sort of almost Jesus, you know what I mean? Ooh. He's such a perfect figure, but he's kind of too perfect. And that chemistry and stuff, is that on Netflix? Is that on Prime? Is that anywhere I can find it? No, it's available on DVDs for about a hundred pounds. It's like, I'm not going to pay a hundred pounds. It's like, so the one show I do want to watch, I can't find. And there's, there's 500 scripted shows coming down the line at me. It's just like, I want the one with the Mountie. And the and the angry Italian Chicago guy and the wolf, can I have that show? Yeah. And the wolf, I okay. So let's go here. I want to. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, but since we're here, since we're wanna, here, let's do it. Since we're here, I want to know your television guilty pleasure. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with mine. So my my television guilty pl pleasure. I doubt very seriously you ever saw it, but it's my it's it's my favorite it's it's my favorite. Uh, as a kid, don't ask me why I don't ask me why I gravitated to this show. I just did. But I own all the copies of it on DVD to this day. True story. My wife makes fun of me um, is Remington Steel starring Piers Brosnan, the young Piers Brosnan and Stephanie Zimbalist. This this P.I. detective show that was like um, it was it was it was. Uh, it was at the same time as another show um, uh, out here called Moonlighting. And Moonlighting, was, oh. I think, probably of the two shows, it was the bigger show, the more popular uh, show. And, of course, it was the launch of Bruce Willis and stuff. But, man, I just – okay, this is how bad I was. I saved um, the advertisements uh, – you'd call them adverts the, – yes. uh, from TV Guide, from the TV Guide of, like, when the season premiere of Remington Steel was coming on, like this is the kind of weird stuff that I would do. So, all right, so that's my true confession. Oh wow! Okay. All right, so what, <laughs> I what feel is, is a guilty pleasure that you're embarrassed to admit that you absolutely loved this show? I don't know if I've got any shame when it comes to watch watching TV. <laughs> um, 
I mean, because Moonlighting was amazing. And that's the that's the other show that I find myself wanting to write the whole time. I just in fact, I've just written um, a, a, a spec script about a kind of it's a sort of romantic comedy. Will they won't they couple um, mm-hmm. who are trying to solve mysteries? Um, it's not really a murder mystery show. Um, so that's kind of another show that I always find myself trying to um, uh, trying to repeat. One of the shows which was I don't know how guilty it is, but there was a big show at the time for you but it's not well remembered is the phil silvers show um oh, yeah i remember phil. I, I i i i i wasn't a huge fan of it but i i've seen it and i've watched it yeah it was shown over here in the uk in the 90s um and uh known as bilko it was just billed as bilko even though the opening card said uh, the phil silver show and i think they like i think they knew people would like it because we had top cat as well which is basically bilko with cats um yeah. But yeah, no, I used to, I've, I've got on my shelf somewhere, um, the Bilko box set. Uh, here it is. Yeah. Uh, there's one I can show you. So, uh, you Bilko? Know, Steve, Martin, Steve Martin made a film, a really bad film. About I think we'd rather that he hadn't. Um, <laughs> one of the movies, there are some movies like that, that I love. And one of them would be, um, the three amigos. Uh, talking of no, um, no, how dare you, sir? How dare you? Three Migos is not a guilty pleasure. That's one of my favorite films of all time. It's you? a great movie. It's a great movie. Just but your your defense, but your defensiveness about it would suggest that you feel guilty. <laughs> I, I'm sensing a guilty you, pleasure. All I have to say to you, James, is kiss me on the veranda. <laughs> <laughs> Lips will be fine. Let's be fine. Let's be fine. Uh, sometimes we, uh, sometimes you'd overplan these things. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just there are so many moments. I did. I have shown that movie to my kids actually. Um, I don't know. I think in terms of guilty, I don't know if I've got many other guilty pleasures because I just call them pleasures. Um, I'm a bit of a. I have to be careful on YouTube. Uh, I've latched onto this guy who makes uh, very long YouTube videos about missing 411 cases. Uh, there's a guy, people go missing in national parks uh, in, in America, but also in, in other parts of the world. And it sort of turned into, because we used to get um, highlights of like public access television um, that you guys had over there, which was not a possibility over here. And it feels like this guy's completely nailed public access TV without realizing it. So He's got he's got some fascinating stories to tell about people who go missing in, in national parks. And they're kind of weird and creepy stories. But it's kind of turned into a bit of a soap opera of this guy's life as well. He's had some really terrible tragedies recently as well. And he talks a lot about mental illness and that kind of stuff. And people write him letters about the way that he looks and that they wish he wouldn't talk about this other stuff. And he kind of doesn't care. And it's just like the whole thing feels like it could be one big character. And I, I can't I can't look away. So I'm, I'm, yeah, YouTube is now my guilty pleasure. I'm realizing I really have to stop clicking. This algorithm is, is really, is really worrying. And then occasionally my daughter uses my iPad and she starts looking up videos about crochet. And so now the, the YouTube algorithm has no idea who I am, um, you know, and I'm watching World War II videos uh, about history and you know goofy comedy and crochet and they're just like this guy's clearly having some kind of identity crisis does not uh, compute so does not compute yeah luck. i must i must confess if i'm not careful i go down on youtube i go down the uh, i don't know if if you guys have it have it down there but i go down the judge judy 
uh, rabbit hole, uh, just clips. There's this, there's this court show over this, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, no, we got it over here. We and then we made our yeah, own yeah. version, and we're, we're we're so grateful for you sending that over to us. Thanks so much. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I don't even watch the show, but somehow on YouTube the clips come up, and I just I just keep clicking. I don't know. Why. I'm a I'm a theme tunes guy, so I just I I incessantly go after theme tunes. And so the moment that iTunes kind of started with access to theme tunes, I kind of spent a lot of money on that. And the fact that I could own, and I was, I used to buy, you know, CDs of them. In fact, I used to buy cassettes of them. I know I'm 45. I can remember cassettes. The, the best of which, going back to Remington Steel, has to be Magnum PI, doesn't it? I mean, oh, is there a yeah. better, yes, yes. Is there a better theme tune in the world than Magnum yeah. PI? So you and I, you and I are probably going to be best friends after this because <laughs> I, I, I'm the same way. I, I, at least for that period of time, so 70s, 80s, 90s, I could pretty much just off of the one word, I can I can hum or sing to you yeah. any song. At least wow, for like okay. father, I was like, I was like, I'd have people quiz me and I could like do it because I, I same thing. I love theme songs, and I remember in college, someone gave me a CD. It was like top 50 greatest thing, TV things. I, loved. I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. That's the best thing I've ever seen in my whole life. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I'm just the same. I don't think any, I think we're going to like each other after this, but I don't think anyone's going to like us. We're, 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 we're talking. Uh, yes, that's right. I think listeners should just tune out. No, 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 no. no. We, we'll, we'll talk about <laughs> something else. Um, so let me, let me go back to, you were talking about family and kind of how that kind of helps you, um, your, your church life and your family life. Um, I'm curious. I've actually never asked anyone this question before. Um, so I'm, I'd love to just uh, hear your thoughts on it. But um, so you started in the business before kids, right? Yeah. And I've, ne- I've never had any other job other than being involved in writing. So I've, yeah. I've been very fortunate that way. So yeah. So you so you so you were a you were a professional screenwriter before kids and you're a professional screenwriter now after kids while having kids, you said 11 and 13. How had how did becoming a father, um, how has that affected, would you say, um, your writing? How, how, how has it changed? Because you and I both know as fathers, our perspectives change yeah. in so many oh, different ways. I'm curious for our conversation, did it in any way affect you, um, uh, your writing? Yeah, I guess I guess it must have done. You just you do see the world differently. You know, you you, you change a bit with marriage, and then you change again uh, with with kids, and it also it gives you plenty to write about as well. Um, I believe they used to say when they re- when they reached a brick wall on Everybody Loves Raymond, they just said, "Okay, everybody go home and have an argument with your spouse." Um, that's right. <laughs> that's about it in the morning because uh, that, that's our show. Um, so yeah, I do say to my wife actually, I say thank you for marrying me. If you didn't, if you hadn't have married me, I would just work all the time, and it it wouldn't be good work. It would just be work, and I have no doubt that I've changed and and changed for the better. I think as a result of my um, godly and loyal, faithful wife. And then kids come along and that changes you again. And it means that when you watch that uh, bit in the movie Crash, where they put that invisible necklace over that, oh my goodness, it just makes me want to well up just thinking about it. Uh, it's just like, oh my word. Um, so yeah, you, there are things you can't watch anymore. Um, but yeah, it, it does change you and it does make you realize that what you're writing has more consequences. Uh, but in a way, you kind of have to ride that out and just think, well, 
you know, if pe- people shouldn't really let their kids watch it. You know, my my show set in Afghanistan. Uh, my kids can't watch that. They came out to South Africa with me when we were filming that uh, in, in South Africa because obviously you can't film in Afghanistan because it's it's an extremely dangerous country. I don't know if if, if this has made it uh, over to where you are. Um, they can't watch the show because it's absolutely full of, of of swearing and explosions and uh, and that's like I don't want them to pick up language like that. So I think you know you do have to um, just keep writing and try to keep that freedom. And just be truthful. But you are aware that what you do has resonance, consequences, legacy. So, you know, you just you just want to be a bit more careful. You, you do become a bit more uh, community minded in that sense, I think. At least I hope you do. Maybe some don't. Uh, and maybe that's OK. Uh, I don't really know. Let's let's shift a little bit and talk about let's, let's talk comedy. I'd love to know from you. And I and I know that I'm 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 asking a basic question that has a very complex answer. And the the worst part about talking about comedy is is that it's unfunny to just talk about comedy. <laughs> it's typically not funny. How do you how do you write funny? How do you write comedy? Uh, do you set out to? Because you were talking earlier about your process of of um, deconstructing almost, and I'm just curious, like. Do you set out, because I'm sure that we have a lot of people listening who, who are either comedy writers themselves or aspiring comedy writers. So do you, is there, an, is there a particular approach you have um, to plot or character, to setups? Just, just curious, um, what can you tell us about your process on how you write comedy? Yeah, thanks. I mean, it goes a bit back to what I was saying earlier about uh, when you're younger, you tend to write sketches and when you're older, you can write sitcoms. And I think... My process has changed and I think that's kind of normal. So when you're um, when you're starting out and you love jokes, 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 um, then you're just you're, you're just trying to work out a way of getting from one joke to the next joke. And that's kind of and also you, you think you've got a certain number of them. So you kind of want to eke them out and make them last and make the most of the ones that you have and all that kind of stuff. And and so you, that's that's when you, you know, and, and there are funny tweets that you can do now and that there are sketches you can write and there's improv and the improv can go round and round and last forever. But after a while, it's a, it's not a very satisfactory situation. And, and in a way, um, my writing partner, Richard, sometimes talks about how actually comedy is, you know, is like exercising a muscle. And you sort of have to trust yourself that you're going to be funny when you get into a particular situation. And if you're writing situation comedy, sitcoms are all about characters. And I've been teaching a lot of this stuff recently through some of the online courses and stuff that I do. And I think everybody wants to talk about story arcs, story arc, story arc. I've got this, I've got this amazing story. And I'm sort of saying to people, I think what you've got there is a really long movie um, uh, with a beginning and the middle and an end. And, and that's, that's cool. That, that, that's fine. That, that's not a sitcom. Um, a sitcom is where the characters are funny and you tune in for the characters and you're trying to find different situations for the characters to be in. And I was just thinking about this when you were interviewing um, the writer, I think it was at Jeremy Howe talking about Big Bang Theory, you know, and by the end they were really struggling to find stuff they hadn't done before. But what was really, what's really interesting about that is the fact that they know they've got brilliant comedy actors, they've got mm-hmm. characters that work and they've got a funny situation. And so they just know that if they can think of an original story, then the characters are going to be funny. 
and that the writers are sort of almost writing down what the characters would just be saying in a way. You're just sort of predicting what the character would say rather than writing it. So, but it's it's just it's so hard to get characters and situations that mesh together in a way um, that give you that regular feeling because because a because a sitcom like Big Bang Theory is like a it's like a Happy Meal. It's it's like a it's like a cookie, as you would call them. We call them biscuits, but you call something else biscuits. And who who knows what flapjack is? Um, so we call biscuits biscuits. Okay, that's what we call them. Yeah, but I think I think our we call what what you call cookies. We call biscuits. Yeah. Um, and I think we call your biscuits scones. I'm not quite sure. Some people call scones. Um, are we going to send out notes with this episode? I feel we should we should issue some diagrams. I think that would be helpful. Um, so. Uh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, that's right. People love comedy sitcoms because of the feeling that they get watching them. There's that feeling of familiarity. We know the characters. We know in Cheers that Norm's going to say something funny when he walks in the bar and they're all going to go, Norm! And Woody's going to say something and Norm's going to say something funny back. And we love it. There, In a way, there's no surprise to that. But what? But the words themselves are surprising. It's kind of a delight. I think that's the way God set the universe up as well. He created seven days. Uh, and so there's an order to creation where we just go round and round and round the same. That's how jazz works. You have a series of chords and you go round and round. That's how a pop song works. That's how a, a Bach fugue works. So I think sitcoms are kind of tapping into that, you know, source code of the universe, which is situation and characters interacting with each other and there are an infinite number of varieties and sometimes there are an infinite number of episodes and the simpsons are still going and i hear that south park's just been recommissioned uh, they just don't ever stop but in a way it's like yeah that can keep going pretty much forever and it's because uh, of the characters like you were saying right like that we for tv you know for film we go and we love to sit in front of the big huge image that transports us to another world but yeah. And, and obviously you can get that with television, but more than anything with television, I love what you're saying. It really is about those characters. We we want to see what happens when Archie Bunker is confronted with that situation or that when Lucille Ball and Lucy is confronted with that conveyor belt or whatever, or, yeah. or Michael Scott is, is, is confronted with something in the office or like that. We, we, we love these characters and we want to see what, how they are going to react, how they're going to respond in those kind of different situations. And when you, when you are crafting a character per se, um, are you thinking about, um, and I'm sure it's probably different for di different circumstances, but how do you go about crafting, uh, different unique characters that you feel like, I think people are going to want to tune in every week, uh, to, to, to see them go through this situation. W how do you craft those characters that you feel like are going to be appealing to people over a long stretch of time? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't know whether I, I just think if they're funny, people are going to like them, even if they're not warm and friendly and cuddly. You know, there are plenty of caustic characters, like, as you mentioned, Archie Bunker. He's just, he's the worst, isn't he? I mean, he's a terrible, terrible person. But the, yeah. the, the thing with characters like that is the, the stuff that they're saying, it's half true. Yeah. Uh, it's not all true. Do you know what I mean? They say the things that other people may be thinking and it may be not okay that they're thinking those things, but they've said it. And so, you know what I mean? That these, these characters who are, who are problematic kind of, uh, say stuff out loud and it's out in the open. It's kind of exhilarating. But when I'm 
I've re I've only recently realized how I write shows uh, and how I come up with new shows is I do tend to think of the idea first. What's this sitcom really about? What's the funniest way of expressing this? Um, and then once I've got that idea, you know, who who is carrying this story or is this a relationship between two people? And what is the funniest? And I just came up with an idea recently for a workplace sitcom. And I just remembered, actually, my main guy, I think this is going to be funnier at home uh, because and he maybe he now works from home because everybody works from home. So maybe that's fine. Um, it's about his relationship with his other half. Um, and that, that, and this issue just keeps coming up again and again, and it's going to come up in a whole load of different ways because they fundamentally see life in different ways. And the character and everybody watching it will identify with one or the other. And if they're, if they identify with one, they're probably married to the other. Um, so you kind of have to hope that they've got resonance, uh, in that situation. And then when you come up with stories and I, I tend to, when I teach people about how to do this stuff as well, I say, look, just kind of come up with a hundred stories just absolutely splurge with dozens and dozens of stories. And it may be that there are one or two characters who just, they don't kind of want to do anything. They're not, they're not giving you anything, in which case they're probably not right. Um, you might want to take another look at them um, or just see what happens if you just bin them, cut them. Um, quite often the least funny character is you. Uh, so you're writing this, this sitcom from your own point of view. And maybe you're writing about, um, about working in a in a hunting shooting fishing kind of shop because you used to work in one and there's this character called bob uh who's kind of the one around whom everything revolves and bob is the least funny person in this show and that's he's you uh you, you've written yourself uh because you and you've made yourself the normal the regular guy you probably need to get rid of that guy or give him something funny to do because otherwise he's going to be boring or he's going to be gone by by season two you'll have to fire yourself yeah that's not good you don't want to have to do that um i did actually have a problem writing a sitcom a while back i did a ra another radio show fairly recently a, a really small little show for radio wales and there was one character i was having real problems with i just couldn't work out why he wasn't giving me the plots and the stories i really liked the character and I, I did a personality test for him. I did a, a Myers-Briggs test um, and discovered that he was me. Um, <laughs> and that's why I couldn't think of anything for him to do because everything he seemed to think of just seemed entirely reasonable and not funny. <laughs> uh, so we've, we've, so I learned that I'm a narcissist as well. That's another personality <laughs> type. Uh, so, uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's all in the character. And once you've got them, you really do hear their voices. Uh, it really does feel like you're not writing. It really does feel like you're capturing what they're saying. Um, and quite often, you know, I did a straw poll on Twitter the other day about what, what do you find hardest in writing sitcoms, uh, dialogue, jokes, plot, or character. And it was really interesting. 57% of people said plot. Ooh. I don't believe them. Yeah. Um, I think they're finding plotting hard because their characters aren't right. Mm. Um, and if your character isn't giving you, isn't giving you options in your plot, if you're, if you can't tell what your character is going to do next, I don't think your character is kind of right. I think you've, I think you're missing something. So mm -hmm. I kind of go back. Uh, and quite often that's the problem, isn't it? Which is basic mechanics or, um, you know, weird alternative medicines as well. So you've got a, you've got a sore back and somebody comes in and, uh, tickles your tiny toe and then uh, shifts your ankle and you sort of start and then you get up and wander around and you're fine it's like there are these little things that have implications so that's what i find anyway i mean i've 
I never studied this. I never studied screenwriting. I never, I've, I have no formal training. I have a degree in theology from the University of Durham. So I've kind of had to figure all this out for myself with trial and error. Um, and I've gotten away with it so far. So I guess there's something to my process anyway. <laughs> I, so speaking of process, um, help us understand a little bit about uh, your process o- over there. Um, versus over here. So, you know, I've talked to several writers over here and they've talked about the writer's room experience here. Um, And it varies from, you know, they're writing the episode in the room, um, literally page by page to, you know, and there's like 15 people in a room doing that to um, people get divvied up episodes where they break the episodes in the room and then they go off and, 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 um, and get a chance to write those and, and they write it maybe with other writers in the room, things like that. Um, so a little bit of nuts and bolts uh, on how it works uh, with you guys. Is it is it uh, similar yet different? And what, what, is the, what is the typical process? Um, for, a, for a pure classic sitcom, uh, it, we, we, we're not big on rooms. We tend to have a short series written by one or two people. Um, and the process and and there's a rolling process for that there's no pilot season there's no there's no system over here the whole thing is a is a shambles um apparently one channel's looking for stuff and they get but they're they're being offered stuff all year round and they're saying yes and no mostly no all things round or all year round so, and so what normally happens so when a show so so like Stephen I know Stephen Moffat writes a, like so when it's a Stephen Moffat show he literally has written everything like, um, that would have been the case. So when he started out, he wrote a show called Press Gang. He probably wrote all of those. Um, and then he wrote a show um, called Coupling, uh, which tried to, which I think uh, started in America and it didn't quite go. But he wrote every episode of that four series of six episodes. I think he wrote 24 episodes of that over the course of four years. And he would have written that in in conjunction with his producer. And again, we don't really have showrunners in the same way. Uh, so the producer is not the writer by and large, but the producer runs the show. Okay. Um, yeah. And they do everything they can to convince the writer that they're, they're lucky to have a show on TV and they should just be grateful and, and do what the notes say. Um, so, so, when, so when you said you and your partner had written, you know, you said you caught a series of eight or a series of six, yeah. whatever. It, so it's just you and your partner. You're not, there's not, there's not a room where you and other writers are breaking story or, or things like that. Not, not really. I think maybe in the second series we got one or two extra guys in just to give us a bit of rocket fuel at the start. But, um, but yeah, they didn't. They didn't write episodes. We just paid them for you know day rates here and there. When you hear um, me describe our process over here, or when you've heard other people, does that just does that? Do you think what in the world? Or like, are you curious? No. Well, we're we're very familiar with it, and we just wish that we had it over here because also oh, really? we'd, make, we'd all make more money. Um, <laughs> Because it's just that we, we we just don't quite have the economies of scale of scale. So, you know, a studio is prepared to invest in a in a sitcom because Friends alone is a multi billion dollar industry. So the whole syndication thing, I think that's eroding a bit now because there's so much TV and all that kind of stuff. But you know, you, your hits are big and they run long. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the the financial upsides in the UK just aren't anywhere like as good as they are. Um, and that's uh, in, in the US or globally. I think that's changing with streaming a bit, but with streaming, you need to get all your money up front because you don't get much afterwards. Um, so that's kind of changing the way things. Having said that, I have worked on a number of shows. I've, I've worked on plenty of other people's shows, but 
I've not really been in a room with other writers for very long. And in fact, I literally today was just um, uh, doing some last minute rewrite notes um, for they're about to shoot an episode of a, of a murder mystery show. I write um, I wrote an episode of called Shakespeare and Hathaway. So it's actually a daytime show over here, but it's exported across the world. Um, I think people think it's prime time in other parts of the world, but this one, this episode, this one is set in Stratford upon Avon, and it's kind of a Shakespeare themed murder mystery thing. And it's 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 a comedy show really, but it's it's a murder mystery, and it's it's sort of genre in that sense. Um, and it's not a will they won't lay, but it's a man and a woman uh, detective team, and it's 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 a really fun show. Um, it's series four, it's partly because of lockdown, but. I think I met with the people who make that show uh, in January last year. I drove up to um, to Birmingham, not your Birmingham, our Birmingham, uh, the second largest city in the UK, um, and uh, had lunch. And actually, they, they they make a couple of other shows as well. And I talked about those other shows, and then uh, didn't didn't speak to them again. And then there was a zoo, and then on, after lockdown, there was a Zoom chat. Um, and then I ended up pitching for the Shakespeare and Hathaway show, and I I pitched ideas and all that kind of stuff. I've I've never I've never seen them. I've never been in the same room as them since. I wrote the episode and sent, and it was it was signed off in September last year. Uh, no, in October last year, and now they're able to film it because of COVID restrictions are lifted. Um, and then other shows I've kind of been in and out of the room. I did a show called Citizen Khan, which was a, a family studio sitcom uh, about a, 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 a an Asian family in the UK, and I was brought in to kind of write an episode with the, the star of that show. Wanted to write episodes, and I've got some experience of writing with the star of the show. I did it on Miranda. I do it with Milton Jones's show, and I, I tend to be able to cope with, you know, the the star. I sort of I'm I'm just trying to. I'm help, I'm trying to help them write the episode they really want to write. I, I I I'm not trying to write my show. I'm trying to write their help them write their show. So I've done that a fair bit as well. So I've got a fairly big I've I think I've got an unusual range of experiences though in in that sense and lots of shows are kind of written by one person. And the usual thing is also they take 6 months deciding whether to make the show or not and then they green light it and say we want to shoot it in 3 months. And you're like what? I've got to write six episodes in three months now. So it's going to be bad. What, why did you do that? Why would you do that? Well, we've got a commissioning window. We should do it then. And the money's available. If we don't spend it this year, then it'll be gone. So it's just like the, the whole system over here is, is, is a joke. Wow. And it's, it's, it's a miracle that half to, in comedy, at least I think drama is a little bit more regimented, but in comedy, because it's come away, because it's come from these army concert party stuff. And then the university review Cambridge footlights, beyond the fringe Monty Python stuff, it's just always appeared that comedy is thrown together um, you know, <laughs> right. against the odds and without enough money. Um, and somehow it's fine. And somehow it is fine. It's just, it's, it's just unpredictable and strange. So I long for pilot season. Uh, we're not, we're not getting one over here anytime soon. And we, we I mean, we've kind of gone, gone away from pilot season for the most part over here because of the streamers. Uh, we're, I think people are kind of falling into, into your guys's model a, a, a lot more for sure. Are you saying that you guys would write, you know, if it was a, a six episode season, um, you'd write all six episodes before you started filming. That was just generally the, the practice. Yeah, I think so. Just because once you've started filming and it's just you, you're really going to struggle to write during the actual filming. Because we'll we'll probably film 
all six in six weeks, you know, in a row. We don't, you know, they might, when we filmed eight uh, Bluestone episodes, I think we did have a kind of a one week hiatus and there was, there was still some work to be done on some of the scripts. So we weren't just supervising the recording. We were still, ah, show seven's still not right. We need to fix that. And here's some other bits. And, you know, we had a read through, you know, we've, we've had a few extra read throughs for this and that. Oh, we've got to do the Christmas one and it's still not quite right. And it's, uh, so there's, there's tweaking, but you, you, you've got to have pretty much done it. Um, if you're only recording six, you know, there's no real excuses for not having at least five of them done, is there? Yeah, but over here, it's a little different. I mean, obviously, like like I was saying, everything's everything's changing with the streamers, but broadcast was, um, they were, they would get ahead of the game. So broadcast, because they're doing the 22 episodes, right? Um, yeah. So they would get, they would get ahead of the game. And, uh, and then, you know, they, what I've been told is that, you know, they would pretty much have the season broke. Well, sitcoms a little differently. If it was an hour-long drama, they'd pretty much kind of have most of the season broken down. But but only, you know, they'll start shooting and they've only got like, you know, episode eight or nine written. Yeah. And so by the time they catch up and, and, and there's, you know, there's famous stories about David Milch. You know, they're filming NYPD Blue. And he's literally upstairs. They're downstairs filming and he's upstairs writing pages while yeah. the crew is waiting for him for pages. And he and he comes down and gives them the pages so that they, the actors can take it and, and, and shoot it like that. That's that's actually a better process here. It's it's a very sounds very different. But but with streaming, um, for sure, there's been a lot more. They're able to kind of write everything and get it all done uh, before they yeah. start. But if you've got if you've got ten people in a room, um, then then you can just start shooting the ones that you've got and the process. And your showrunner normally has a kind of a number two who'll run the room, and so the epi- so the scripts will keep coming. Um, and your team, your crew's probably bigger. Yeah, yeah. You might have two units, all that kind of stuff. Whereas you know we're just we're just making with we you know we're we're making the the show for less yeah. uh, over here. You know, so m- the budget for my per episode for my uh, Bluestone show was, I don't know, 300,000 pounds, maybe 280 per episode. It, and that was a bit cheaper because we were doing eight of them. Whereas, you know, you're, you're spending that just, you're, you're spending that just on the talent, on the, on the actual, on the cast. Were, uh, you on a, were you on a soundstage or were you on location? So we, we, we were on location for that whole, for the whole series, the whole, first, whole series was shot on location, but yeah, studio sitcoms are more expensive again. So they tend to come in more than that, but you know, but you're rehearsing somewhere else, and you know there are ways of making all these things work. And the the most annoying thing about comedy is that the more expensive it is, the less funny it tends to be. Yeah, right. You know, there's really super expensive uh, Hollywood comedy movies. They're just not as funny as Spinal Tap, and yeah, Spinal yeah. Tap was made for nothing. You know, yeah. and and the writers of Spinal Tap have still not received any more money. I believe that's still a long run. <laughs> It's owned by some holding company in France and they've never seen a bean since they wrote the movie. So is it true? At some point I read that you guys gen- generally do uh, three seasons and you don't typically do more than three seasons on average, most shows. And, and I read somewhere that that had something to do with faulty towers. Is that, is that, <laughs> any, is there any truth to that? There is something in that actually. Yeah. Faulty towers uh, only ran for two seasons and it's a very highly acclaimed show. John Cleese's, you know, um, hotel sitcom, yeah. all about class. And it's very funny and very silly. And 
Yeah, he wrote a series in 1975 and a series in 1979 with his then wife, Connie Booth, and they kind of got divorced. So he wasn't really minded to write a third season. Um, and he's a python. He doesn't have to write any more episodes of a sitcom than he wants to. And he went off and made a fish called Wonder and a whole lot of, you know what I mean? I love, I love fish called Wonder. I don't know why I like that movie so much. Guilty pleasure. There we go. I knew I'd come <laughs> up. Um, but, uh, and then the young, there was another show called the young ones, I think, which, uh, which was a really anarchic, uh, silly, strange punk kind of sitcom. And that ran for two series. And so then, you know, people just tend to think, Oh, if I just do 12 episodes of this, if I do two series of six and then it's perfect. And then I won't, uh, because, it's, because also as I say, there's not that much money in it. So the idea that you wouldn't just keep doing it and doing it because, this way you're going to be able to buy another house. It's just like, Oh, do I want to do a third series of this. Can I think of something else to do? Uh, there's just very little pressure on you uh, to keep doing it. And I guess previously there was just a chance that you might be able to do something else that you'd get another show on TV and it wouldn't be that hard. But now there are so many people trying to do it. Mm -hmm. I always say, look, you know, just do, do your show till they tell you to stop because you might not get another show on for 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh so you know I, I think i think faulty towers does have a lot to answer for there is definitely something in the faulty towers theory how would you describe and i'm sure you've been asked this in, in, in other many other contexts um how would you describe the difference between british humor and american humor yeah i don't know uh, because as i say there are so many successful american shows that are successful british shows in, in britain and we like them and we like them for the same reasons that you like them. So I'm really not sure there's that much difference. I think the British like to feel superior and assume that the that Americans don't do irony. And you go, well, The Simpsons has just got irony all over it. The Family Guy's got irony all over it. I mean, how, you know, how much more successful does a show have to be in America to, to demonstrate that 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 they get irony so in a way i just i i, I struggle with this one i i don't really know um because as i say you wouldn't expect uh british people to love friends as much as they did because we're not particularly sentimental in that way um and you'd think we go for seinfeld but people just lapped up friends um but there we go uh i don't know that's my honest answer i just don't know um i love what i love about british humor because I grew up, I was, you know, prior to us recording this and we were talking, I, uh, British humor was always the, if, if I'm using this term correctly, um, by all means, tell me if I'm not, was always the cheeky humor, right? It was always the, right, I, and I you know, when I was a teenager and a kid, there was um, the, the local PBS station aired old reruns of a 70s show called Are You Being Served, which was like a British... Um, I think they worked at a department store or something yeah. and it was, you know, it wasn't high, it wouldn't be what we call highbrow humor at all. It was just lowbrow. It was a lot of, a lot of sex jokes, a lot of innuendo, a lot of, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, would be like the equivalent of our, um, uh, at the time, maybe the equivalent would be like three's company or something, you know, which was a big hit over here. But, but I'm saying like, um, it's just curious to me that like, and then of course, you know, there was the Benny Hill and yeah. was, right. And so, uh, and of course, Monty Python and everything. So everything was this kind of cheeky, irreverent, 
Um, and for me, like in the eighties, things were a little softer here. It was, it was different strokes. It was facts of life. It was growing pains. It was Cosby show. So like, that's how I differentiate, but, but that's only like a brief period of time. Um, uh, British comedy was also just a lot sillier at the time. You yeah. Know? I think there's something in that. I mean, we, I think those shows that I, I used to watch, um, the Cosby show, uh, mm-hmm. they used mm-hmm. to have that on channel four at six o'clock, six 30. I used to watch that before I, or after my tea, it was in the same, they put Roseanne in that slot as well. And that always felt a little bit more, had a bit more edge to it. Um, you know, that, that, that had a different quality, which, which I really liked. Um, although it became pretty sour, uh, eventually, um, it sort of went from having an edge to, you know, yeah, being, being a bit sad. Um, but yeah, I think, I I get the sense that there are a lot of American shows where people were generally happy uh, and learning lessons every week. And there was always, whereas I think British shows kind of did highlight dysfunction much more. And I don't know why our TV censors and standards of acceptable stuff was prepared to be more risque and more, um, more, more sexual in tone. And actually, as you look back on it, some of it now, you just think, oh, man, that's really, that's misogynistic. Yes. That's yes. that's inappropriate. I wouldn't want my kids watching that. Yes. Um, but yeah, so that there is that kind of, because because of, I think it's partly because we had the kind of the Victorian era of what is perceived to be sexual repression um, that in the 20th century, we came out of that and just sort of, you know, started making jokes about it and and... So, yeah, I think there are lots of cultural. It's so interesting because sitcoms really do show what the nation is like um, mm-hmm. and what was acceptable then is not acceptable now. And the hero of that age is not the hero of this age. And sometimes you do go back to some real favorites and you go, oh, uh, what what is this? This is not how I remember it at all. Yeah. And there yeah. are other things you look back on and you just think, wow, this was really interesting. This was really ahead of its time. And at the time, I didn't think this was anything special. And uh there was a british show called rising damp about a about a landlord uh, who lent who let out his 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 uh his rooms to some students one of whom was black um and it was a really interesting exploration of of racism and the the black uh the black student used to play up to a very superior he used to give off the impression that he had been an african prince um and we got the impression that he was kind of making this up and that he was messing with this guy uh, who was fascinated by him. And you watch it now and you think, oh, my goodness, it's going to it's a 70s show. It's going to be a bit racist. And you watch it and you just think, oh, wow, this is really sophisticated stuff. I don't think we realized at the time how good this was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is they are so evocative of the times and they, they really do. They really do lay bare what we value and cherish and celebrate as a society. It's, it's sort of yet another reason why I'm so interested in them. Um, as a, as a comedian, I'm curious, um, your thoughts on this, not only as a comedian, but, but as a, but as a Christian, how important is it, if at all, for us to separate the art from the artist? So for instance, you know, and this is in the context of maybe what people would describe as over here, you hear comments, uh, terminology like cancel culture and things. Right. So I bring this up because I made me think of it with the Cosby show, right? Like, Mm. It's it's hard for a lot of people. So the Cosby Show was the biggest show in the mid to late eighties. I mean, it drew huge numbers, and um, 
I remember as a kid, my whole family watching that show. And it was just so funny. And everybody was talking about the Cosby show the next day at school because everybody watches. So everybody was talking about, oh, did you hear when Rudy said this or when Theo said that, you know, whatever. And now it's so hard to go back. And, and uh, I've heard people say it's hard for them to listen to Michael Jackson albums these days. I've heard people yeah. say, I've heard people say it's hard for them to watch a Woody Allen film these days. And, I, and I'm just curious. With, your, your I found Woody Allen pretty creepy to begin with. I tried watching one or two of his movies. <laughs> I think it was Manhattan. I started watching and after 20 minutes, I just thought, I don't want to watch this. He's, not, he's, he's, he's trying he's basically cracking onto a teenage girl. I just, oh man. Wow. Critics rate this movie. Well, there you go. Um, so anyway, what are, your, what are your thoughts on, on, on the idea of separating the art from the artist? Can you appreciate, can you appreciate, um, Michael Jackson's music? Can you appreciate Bill Cosby's rec, you know, his old classic records? You know, I, I remember as a kid, my parents would play his famous Noah's Ark bit. It was one of the funniest, <laughs> it was one of the funniest comedy bits I'd ever heard was Bill Cosby being Noah talking to God. It was one of the funniest things I'd ever heard. I'm just curious your thoughts on this. Yeah, I, to be honest, I think writers above all are quite good at separating stuff out. Um, and I'm aware that other people find that a lot, a lot harder. So although lots of writers may want to sound principled and frequently are principled and take a stand, in a writer's room, privately behind closed doors, we say some pretty terrible things. And we know that it's a safe place because everybody understands that you're sort of messing around with words and, you know, how would it be if, you know, so, so they can be pretty grotesque um, places. And I, and I, to be honest, I, I'm kind of fine with that. Uh, and sometimes I, I might say things that I think, oh, I shouldn't have said that. But other times I just think, yeah, everyone in this room gets it. Uh, you know, the, the rules are different here. Um, I think Christians often long for, well, we love rules uh, because we're, many of us are Pharisees at heart. What words can I use and what words can I not use? Um, I don't care about the context. Um, I want I want a list of rules. It's like, okay, uh, the rule keepers and the rule makers uh, were the guys who killed Jesus. So just be careful if you want rules that you're not being more holy than Jesus because uh, that, that doesn't end well. So don't do that. But equally to say that it doesn't matter what you do or say is obviously nonsense. Of course it, of course it does. So, you know, and, and actually, so I wrote a book called The Sacred Art of Joking, where I talk an awful lot about the ethics of comedy. Um, firstly, how jokes work, but also how it goes wrong, especially in the realm of religion. And so we're often not very sophisticated in the way that we do approach uh, our comedy. And we, w we do want hard and fast rules. Um, and I don't think we're ever really going to find them. So in a way, it's, it's up to you. If, if, if you can't watch the Cosby show, um, I think that's fine. I'd understand that. The other day I was just thinking, oh, I'd love for my kids to watch something. They watched a bit of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. They're a bit bored of that because um, we happen to have, I think that's on Disney Plus. Oh, wouldn't it be great if like The Cosby Show was on? Oh, I remember growing up with the Huxtable family and oh, that was great. Uh, oh, yeah, that's not going to be on anymore, is it? Oh, Okay. Well, my kids don't know and they don't care. And I would like for something for them to watch. Now, the thing I think where we're in trouble is when we as Christians or individuals require other people to feel the same way about things that we feel. 
Um, and unfortunately, that's I don't I don't think we get to do that. So we get to respectfully disagree with each other and our scruples and our consciences. And there's plenty of scripture uh, on that subject towards the back end of Romans. Paul writes on some of you find, you know, won't eat meat sacrificed to idols and some are free and some of you observe these days and some of you don't. And can you just get on, <laughs> you know, to, to summarize what Paul was kind of driving at? Um, Very similar to your Aristotle summary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've got all of these quotes at my fingertips. Uh, what an erudite man I'm turning out to be. But so I, th I think we have room to disagree on this. And therefore, I just I, I do worry that we're being told ahead of time exactly how we should feel about everything. And I'm, I'm not a particularly charismatic guy. So charismatic with a big C, Christian charismatic in the sense of I'm not particularly uh, I'm always a bit suspicious of my feelings. My feelings are not reliable, but facts. Christ rise from the dead. Uh, Christ is risen. He is in heaven. He will return. These are all facts. It doesn't really matter how I feel about them. Uh, they're all facts. So going back to what we were saying before. So don't worry. Um, Christ died on the cross for my sins. There is nothing that I can do about that to change that. Um, so, so, you know, so, so those are the things that I focus on. But a lot of comedy is you you don't get to laugh at that you react and i think that's why comedy is so hard to handle is because when you laugh at a joke you betray something about yourself you can't take it back if you laugh at a mean joke then people will go huh that's not wow i think differently about you yeah they're not as nice as they appear to be well that's true of all of us yep. um our hearts are all pretty dark Yep. Um, so yeah, so I think that's why comedy particularly lays us bare in that sense is because our reaction to a joke is visceral. It's visceral, it's emotional, it's instinctive. And we struggle to hide that. Like we've managed to hide the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think that's why comedy is a particularly difficult issue. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, don't, don't be a jerk. You know, you may be free to say what you want and you may be free to crack a joke, but what would you make a joke in front of this person in that situation? Well, and, I, you know, the, sh the show that I did in Afghanistan had IEDs, had bombs going off. Um, mm -hmm. And there'd be some people who wouldn't be able to watch that mm -hmm. uh, because they know someone in that situation. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not. And so I would say you're probably not going to want to watch this. But actually what you find is people who do know uh, people who've been in that situation, relatives and friends of people who have served in Afghanistan, they said, Oh, I found that show so cathartic. It really showed me the world that my brother uh, was living in. It really showed where, why my son wanted to go. And, um, and, you know, and actually just seeing people deal with, with grief and all that kind of stuff in a comedy context, because for soldiers, especially British soldiers, it's just jokes all of the time, all of the time, all of the time. They just take the rip out of each other all the time. They think the world of each other. They punch each other. They live together. They eat and breathe and sleep uh, together. Um, so, so you just can't predict what people's reactions are going to be. So I'm always a bit wary about trying to predict ahead of time. So if you can't watch a show because you don't like the person who wrote it, okay. Uh, I might feel differently. Um, you don't really get to judge me because I feel differently about it. Uh, but maybe I've made an error of judgment. So maybe you do. It's complicated, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. Um, the last thing I wanted to, and this, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. I am so grateful to you. It's a pleasure. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is, is, is kind of circle back to that, my first introduction to you. 
And you have this really interesting kind of perspective on, and you've written extensively about this. I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of a unpacking, if you can, um, on this idea of the gospel-centric nature of sitcoms themselves. What what is that? What is you know what does that mean, and 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 why um, and why why should that matter to us? I think movies are very exciting, but we don't live in movies really. We live in sitcoms. Um, and I think in a way, the sitcom is the most true to life um, because, because of the hardness of the human heart, we are very, very slow to change. Um, and so you know how someone's going to react to something. When the phone rings and you see who's calling you, oh, I know what this is going to be about. Uh, you know what I mean? This is like, you, and then you answer the phone and they say exactly what you thought they were. Unbelievable. I cannot believe they just, you know, we live in sitcoms because people, and if people do change, they change really, really slowly. Sometimes they change fast through the power of the gospel. And that is a beautiful, wonderful thing. But even the spirit tends to hang around and take, take his time over, over transforming us into, into the likeness of his son. And so many of us wish that he, he would you know step on the gas there um, and and you know raise our game he doesn't need to raise his game he needs to raise our game um so in a way i like how true to life situation comedies are but also in sitcoms sitcoms are intensely moral um so they're not i mean so i think they're christian and i think they're christian because i think the world is christian because everything was made through christ so uh, whether you think it's Christian or not, well, okay, it, it is. Uh, so stories have resonance because they reflect the gospel. They reflect God's story in some way. And therefore, we know that sins will be revealed. We know that sins will be punished. We know that they will be at the end, but th that they are now. So your sins will find you out. So in a sitcom, if somebody tells a lie in the first 90 seconds, that's going to go badly for them. And we need it to go badly for them because we know in our hearts that that lying is bad and it has consequences. So that lie is going to require a bigger lie and then a bigger lie. And then there'll need to be a confrontation and then there'll need to be some something else. You know, somebody who is proud, they are going to be humbled. Um, somebody who has stolen something that that is going to be detected. Murder mysteries, funny murder mysteries are all based on who's the bad guy. Can we find them? We, we need justice. We need that. And, and so we, we get it with murder mysteries. And we all know in our heart of hearts, if this went to trial, that's not going to stand up and that person's going to walk free. You know, it's just like that. That's how that's how these things go. Um, we don't care about that. We don't show that bit. We just show. There we go. They're being they're having their head put down as they're put into the into the police car. Yeah. We've got the missing piece of evidence that's definitely going to convict them. Uh, we need to see that. And in comedy, you know, we have that comic release as we see justice is done in some way. And our hero succeeds and fails at the same time somehow. They never really succeed, but they also never truly fail. There's always some bittersweet resolution. Um, and it's kind of see you next week. Uh, and we'll do the same thing all over again. Um, and, and I just think that is because we live in a profoundly moral universe. And I, therefore I think there's lots of comedy that doesn't seem very funny because nothing seems to matter. And fundamentally, if stuff is funny, that there, there is a through line, there is a meaning to it. There is a story to it, that there is a morality to it. 
So I don't care if someone says they're an existentialist. If they write a comedy and it's funny, it's not going to be an existentialist comedy. It can't be. It just can't. You, you can't write a nihilistic comedy because it doesn't make any sense because nothing matters. Um, it might be funny in places and it might be funny because it's unlike every other sitcom. It's the first nihilistic sitcom. It's all the jokes that they're not doing, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's going to wear thin after a little while. Um, somebody was telling me that Rick and Morty do this uh, a fair amount. They sort of deconstruct the format, but they're, but they're not really, are they? Um, every story has meaning. Everything has a beginning and a middle and an end. Uh, so, so that's why I love sitcoms profoundly, because I just think they are a good description of life. And that's why I, I hope to keep writing them. I just think, although I do lots of other things, I write books and, and teach and... I'm a member of the General Synod of the Church of England um, and raise my kids and all that kind of stuff and teaching them Latin and trying to teach myself New Testament Greek. I just keep coming back to sitcoms and how much I love them. And I think that's why. I think that's because that's how God has made the universe. Life is a sitcom. So, you know, and if you don't find yourself funny, then I, I, don't, have any, I don't have anything for you. Uh, it's going to be painful. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, this has been long. <laughs> good luck with the edit <laughs> i might just let it roll i don't know it's been so good you're you were um you were uh such a joy to meet and uh, it's just been such a privilege and honor to spend time with you and uh it's everything i had hoped for i i just appreciate all of your uh wisdom and insight and um and uh don't quit your day job that's what I mean. <laughs> great thank you very um, much if it's okay with you, I, I like to close all of our podcasts by uh, saying a, a prayer for uh, for our guests. That'd be okay with you? I'd love that. Thank you. Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, just want to pause and thank you for James Carey. Thank you for uh, his wit. Thank you for his humility. Thank you for his wisdom. Um, thank you for uh, just his acknowledgement of his need for you and um, all the goodness that you have brought uh, to his life. God, uh, I want to thank you for James and just thank you for this time. Thank you for the chance for us to be able to connect and talk. And, and God, I just pray right now just for a blessing upon him, uh, for all of his endeavors, everything he's got going on in his life, especially for um, his wonderful family, just a blessing upon his wife and kids. And um, I pray, God, that you would protect their family, watch over them, um, bind them closely in you. Um, God, I pray that you would um, provide opportunities for James to um, not only write really funny stuff, but to um, uh, be a blessing and benefit to those around him while he does it. And uh, thank you for uh, just the, the testimony and the life that he lives and the, the light and the grace that he lives uh, his life in um, there in England. And we just uh, thank you for technology and the opportunity to be able to have such a great conversation in such a long distance. And uh, we thank you for this. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Act One Podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood, Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. The Act One program is a division of Master Media International. To financially support the mission of Act One, or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. And to learn more about the work of Master Media, go to mastermedia.com.